Hi, this is Paul. This is a guy who very careful watchers or Christian reform watchers might recognize him and remember that he was on a live stream about Synod. And actually, we did go into your biography a little bit. I was thinking back on that video. This is Nate Mendenen. You are the pastor of what church where? So first Christian Reformed Church in Chatham, Ontario. Chatham, so Ontario. we're about an hour from Detroit, uh, just across the border. If those of you know, in Detroit, you have to go south to get into Ontario. But anyway, we're, uh, <laughs> what, we're here. Tell me about Chatham. So Chatham is an interesting place. Uh, first here was the first Christian Reformed Church in Ontario, started in 1926 with money from a little bit of money from classes Grand Rapids East. And, um, and then uh, they struggled uh, quite a bit at the beginning. And then in the 1950s, after the second world war, then a huge influx of Dutch immigrants came uh, to Canada. And this church sent people to uh, Nova Scotia, to uh, greet people at the boat um, who are coming off and bring them here. And so as I've learned over the years being here, a lot of Christian Reformed people have come through this church, uh, maybe just for a year or two, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little shorter. And that also included Mennonites and other people who this was the um, kind of the, the first stopping place before moving on to other parts of Ontario. So um, there's a lot of connections here. Yeah. Now, 1926 is interesting because it's after the First World War. And when you look at um, immigration patterns, which very much set the tone for the Christian Reformed Church, there's a big drop-off in the United States. And what's interesting is that often... Canada sort of gets people first, I think, probably tried to get to the United States, their immigration law changes, and so they could get into Canada easily. That That's a much broad, more broad immigration pattern in terms of North America. Canada is usually the easier place to get to, and then people often get to Canada and then come to the United States afterwards. So was there was there a pattern of immigration after the First World War that couldn't get into the... Do you know anything about this? I'm just kind of curious. No, I haven't dug. I haven't dug into that too much. I know that there was a little tension between those who were here and then those who came later, as um, some of the theological debates taking place in Holland in the 1940s got carried over, and that wasn't really on the radar of the Christian Reformed Church here. And so you do get a couple of splits on the Canadian side. Um, and then kind of the Canadian Reformed Church, I'm not quite sure their history, but yeah, they, um, a lot of people first joined the CRC and then joined the Canadian Reformed Church after that. And my understanding from seminary as to the roots of the Canadian Reformed Church were radically different than the Canadian Reformed Church pastor that I talked to. So I'm not going to venture <laughs> into, into what exactly those differences are. So, so what is the Canadian Reformed Church? So I'd say their closest analog in the U.S. might be the Protestant Reformed Church. Oh. Um, they, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, very similar. I mean the three forms of unity the you know, their church structure is the same. Um, 
my and then but i'm not right now i can't put my finger on exactly what was so significant about it it was um uh, that caused the split i I've known that information at one point, but it's slipping my mind right yeah. now. I recently did, I haven't posted it on my channel yet. It just appeared on his channel. I did an interview with someone from the Canadian Reformed Church, and I knew nothing about his church. And it, it was very interesting, some some of the topics that he had. I'll, I'll post, I'm going to do some clips of it first, and then I'll probably post the interview on my channel. But I didn't, you know, I sort of know about the United Church of Canada, which is the ma big mainline Canadian Protestant church. And then I know about obviously about the Christian Reformed Church in Canada. As an American pastor, I have to be really careful about talking about the Christian Reformed Church in Canada because we know that many Canadians, Christian Reformed people, are very sensitive about Americans talking about you know the their knowledge of the Canadian Christian Reformed Church. That's a that's a very esoteric form of knowledge that I, as someone who has only lived south of the border, um, should should be very careful to speak of. So. Um, <laughs> little sensitive i'm gonna get crap for this too i know but it's that's that's kind of the impression of american talking to some canadians that a little sensitive okay we'll 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 be careful we you know all right so but we i mean we could talk about that too because well let's get into your biography a yeah, little sure. bit because where nate and i sort of you know early on come together is his grandfather was a he was a Calvin distinguished alumni one at the same years as my parents. He founded, you know, he and my parents worked together on ECUMP, um, which was an organization that tried to help poor inner city kids get into Christian schools that were part of the Eastern Christian school system. Then he was a very important founder in terms of Don Treader, an inner city Christian school that was a little bit of outside the Eastern Christian um, group. And then he also, he was, he ran a business called Glenrow. And then he also established what is a really cool continuing thing in Patterson, which is helping give uh, job training and jobs to young men uh, growing up in the inner city. And so uh, his grandfather, Herb Vendenen, was, you know, as a kid, we used to go swim in your grandparents' pool. Your grandfather was always over to my house and my parents over to his house for these meetings. And then my mother was Herb Vendenen's um, administrative secretary at Glenrow for many years before she did that for uh, for Don Treader. So when I see the name Vendenen, there's just instant multi, there's just instant generational credibility. So actually, I met Nate at a synod, and I think it, it was in Iowa, and we were sitting next to each other in one of these little uh, one of these little golf carts that they were ushering us around in, and he's like. You know, I was blogging at that time. Says, "Oh, I read your blog," and so we struck up a conversation. So let, let's, even though we did more biography in a previous, um, your was your father born in New Jersey? Uh yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, how long did Herb live in New Jersey? Uh, up and uh, up until the end of his life, really. Uh, they for the past couple of years, they had a property in Florida, and they would they were kind of splitting their time in between the two. Yeah. Um, Very but, typical. But he New still York. had his, yeah, he still had his property in uh, in uh, New Jersey with the pool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When he died, so, yeah. 
So your father grew up in New Jersey and, but you, um, so why don't you walk through some of this and let's just get, then maybe get into some of the calling stuff. So, right. So, well, in some respects, Paul probably knows my grandfather better than me, but uh, <laughs> we I remember him. He was a great guy. I, he was the first guy I knew had a calculator. Oh, and calculators okay. were super expensive at that time. But of course, he was an engineer and worked in this stuff. So, um, but I remember seeing a calculator. It was like amazing. You could do math on this tiny little machine. He did like his, the stuff, like he had his Mercedes and he would take me to school, to Don Treader Christian School. You went to Don Treader? I went to Don Treader for grade one to grade three. I didn't know that. And so um, so he would take me and drop me off there and and he had a car phone, like like back in the 19, I mean, this would have been like the 1987, 1988. It's just like this huge thing that took takes up the whole center of the Mercedes that he'd take me to school with. <laughs> uh, yeah, so just for the audience, you should know that Dutchman often gray early. So Nate is actually a lot younger than I am. I was in <laughs> seminary when <laughs> Nate was just starting Dawn Treader. So that'll give you an idea of the age difference here. But keep going. <laughs> I'm 42. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, it starts. So, my father then he goes to Calvin, meets uh, my mother, and um, what's interesting about that is so, which is the dad, Christian reform thing to do. Right. You go to Calvin. Yeah. Let's like salmon swimming upstream, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> driving from New Jersey to Grand Rapids yeah. to find a mate. In the yeah, Christian right. form spawning grounds and then going back out into the world. So anyway, keep going. Yeah, so uh, and um, so, of course, my grandfather, Herb, um, was involved in what today we would call like cross racial ministry or whatever. I don't know what they would call it necessarily back then, but a real interest in uh, yeah, interest in inner city and uh and so then my dad meets my mother and my mother's um, father is John Houseward. And he was a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church and also a church planter. He worked a little bit in Cleveland and, and in Indiana. And he, um, and he was a member of the NAACP, which I don't think there are too many white CRC ministers who were a part of the NAACP. But he... Um, civil rights is a very important thing to him, uh, as well. And so I haven't talked to my dad about this, but I wonder if that there was a little affinity there between him and, and my I'm sure mom it was, and, and I'm uh, sure it was more than just that though. That too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, they, so they meet at Calvin then they go, um, then eventually my dad ends up getting a job for Phillips petroleum and he, then gets transferred to Norway. So here my mom and my dad go to Norway um, and we live in Stavanger and that's where me and my brother and sister are born. So Do you have I'm a Norwegian born in passport? Norway. What's that? Do you have a Norwegian passport? I don't know. Um, I'm a, I have a little piece of paper that says certificate of American citizen born abroad. Um, since both of my parents are U.S. citizens, that means that I am automatically a U.S. citizen, even though I can't become president of the U.S. Not that I'd want to, but but I was not born on the land, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so I I lived there um, until 
uh, halfway through grade one. So until I'm six years old and my brother, and my sister's born and my brother's born. And um, I was fluent in Norwegian, at least as much as a six-year-old could be at that time. And um, yeah, so then the oil kind of market drops in the late 1980s. Um, my dad is thinking uh, about moving Either he could stick with the oil company, but that might mean he uh, ends up in Texas somewhere or else he could say, okay, well, I'll go work for my father, for Herb at Glenrow. So, so we move to New Jersey. Um, my dad takes a job at Glenrow and then- Where did you live? Jersey. Oh, oh sorry, you got someone on. coming in. Okay. Yep. See, um, this is what being doing a doing a Zoom when you're a pastor is oh, like. Yeah. <laughs> it's always an interruption. <laughs> yeah. So we leave Norway, uh, moved to New Jersey, and then all of a sudden, um, I am. No, no. Where Hawthorne. in New Jersey did you live? I'm so curious. we lived in Hawthorne. We oh, actually okay. lived right down the street, Gulfell Hill Road. Oh yeah. Uh, from my grandfather. So. Okay. Uh, yep. Um, so we lived there, and we. Um, and then I went to Don Treader. My sister went to Eastern Christian. My brother was too young for school yet. Um, and that was interesting. I mean, then I go from Sam's, the Stavanger American School, uh, to Don Treader, where I'm one of wow. five white kids in a class of about 25 african-americans and a, yeah. and miss mcgregor my african-american teacher for grade one and um and i think that becomes more significant as i reflect on it than it was when i was a kid mm -hmm. because and i say and i was saying this to some high school students the other day you have to be taught that you shouldn't play with those kids. Yeah. And if you're not taught that, and I wasn't, yeah. uh, then all the kids are kids and that, you play with right. all of them that's and right. they look different than you, but you don't even notice really no. at the end of no. the day. You just play. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. So now, you know, it, it's significant. I went to this school, I was a minority, but, but then not so much. Um, and Which is part of the reason why Ecomp and Dawn Treader and, your grandfather and my parents had that focus because they understood that they wanted their children and their grandchildren at a very early age to do something opposite of what was that, that, you know, in the sixties and seventies, the national national focus. So no, that's very true. Yeah. So um, we could talk about my experience with Don Treader a little bit, but I don't know. I, um, it, I mean, for me, it was a good experience. I had some good friends. I fit right in. Um, there and I was there until grade three and at that time um like I learned later my mother didn't like New Jersey I mean it was too busy ah yeah it is very busy it is very busy you know <laughs> and everywhere you go you got like tons of cars and she grew up in the Midwest and so Glenrow had an opportunity to buy a little business in Ripley, Ohio, which is 50 miles east of Cincinnati, population of 2,000 or less, probably more like 1,800, on the Ohio River. And so, um, so Glenrow buys that company, and my dad, who's still working for his father at that time, 
moves us to the southern Ohio area so that we can live there. And so then I have a cross-cultural experience number two, where there's no Christian school around. So my kids put me, uh, my parents put me in the Catholic school. So I go to St. Michael's Catholic school for grade five, six, and seven. I did have one year of public school there in grade four, but uh, yeah, five, six, seven, and eight. I'm in a Catholic school going to mass every Friday. I got in trouble for looking around in church because, well, they have pictures on the wall. I mean, can you believe it? I know. <laughs> I never seen that before. We used to have to look at the patterns of the tiles and things <laughs> like right. that, or That's the right. names on the donation plaque, something like that. They got pictures to look at. It's like, gosh. Yeah, so, so apparently, you know, the pictures are there, but you're not supposed to look at them. So maybe they were following the Heidelberg Catechism that they're not supposed to be teaching aids anyway. But <laughs> anyway, so, so I, um, I learned a lot. Um, that was, that was also a good um, experience for me. Uh, and I, uh, I sort of go to Mass every Friday and then we're... But finding a church for Sunday was a bit of a challenge. We uh, we had left uh, Madison Avenue Christian Reformed Church in Patterson. Um, I still uh, which, remember what that ceiling looks like because I did look up at those times. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, keep going. But that, like, when I think about church as a kid, it's really Madison Avenue that I think about. Yeah, I mean that, and what Christian Reformed worship can be, um, whereas completely blended with. Uh, white and African-American, it, it, there was a lot of soul in that yep. service. And of course, John Alger is still alive. He's still there. Yep. And um, I remember him as a little boy. Yep. Um, and yeah, so anyway, Catholic school, um, five through eight. And then I go to public high school because um, Catholic school is kind of done at that point. So then I'm in public high school. Um, and I mean, that had its own, I mean, the thing about living in a small town is all the problems of the big city are right there and you know them, like, uh, you know, you know who the drug dealers are in a small town. You might not know who they are in a big city, but you're probably riding the bus with them in a small town. Yeah. And, and I did. And uh, yeah, so we just learned a lot um, about life on uh, different aspects and um, kind of the mix between and people who had resources and people who didn't. And, um, but finding a church was tough. We went for the first year in Ohio, we drove to the Cincinnati Christian Reformed Church. That was an hour and a half away. Wow. Uh, and that's not really sustainable. Um, yeah. Then we went to a Presbyterian church for a while. Um, and that's where I did my kind of profession of faith. And, um, and then I went to, uh, I went on a mission trip to Mexico and that was with YWAM actually with mercy ships. They ran this kind of youth program. So uh, one week of evangelism training and one week in Mexico to go try it out. I don't think we really knew what we were doing. <laughs> I know <laughs> you're going to go convert the Catholics <laughs> in Mexico <laughs> to become Protestants. That was because they, because they look at pictures. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or at least they act like they don't. Yeah, right. But um, but anyway, I shouldn't make too much fun of that because that was the the I would say that was my actual profession of faith when um 
we were in Monterey, Mexico, and uh, I remember being in this little chapel up on this hillside, and there were, um, it was night, and you could see these little dots of light on the hillside when you looked out the windows from the chapel, and I remember thinking about you are the light of the world, and and how like all these little Christian communities are all these little lights all around, and. And also, there was an altar call at that service because we were going to start our time of outreach. And um, and I remember he had called everybody forward, like, now's the time to dedicate yourself to the Lord before you do this. And, and I remember really thinking, like, this is it. Like, I'm 17 years old. I, I go up there, then Jesus owns me. And I hesitated for quite some time mm. before I, I went up to the front and knelt down and said, I wanted Jesus to be in charge of my life and not me. Mm -hmm. And, and immediately my life blew up. Mm. <laughs> Let's um, hear about that. <laughs> so I get back, I'm 17 years old. I'm dating this girl whose father is Jewish. Oh. And I'm like, on fire for god in this kind of pen almost pentecostal way so we're no longer compatible um so that relationship breaks off and children, thank you what's that your children thank you yes <laughs> yeah and uh but as a high school student i mean you go through your yeah. first major breakup it's a it's a yeah. challenge and and then and then all so that happens but kind of a bigger picture is you have this really intense spiritual experience of uh, like it was the first time in my life i'd ever seen somebody converted like on the spot with the tears and like they're coming from death to life and that kind of thing right and hey you get back into uh well ripley ohio and boring church and like it seems like people don't really get it and they're not on fire like no. you're on fire yeah like this kind of stuff's not happening um and you know you try to talk about what happened to you you try to talk about your faith and nobody seems to get it and and that uh, i mean you talk about the mountaintop experience followed by the valley and i descended down into the valley after that and probably stayed in the valley for about five six years actually wow um i went to I went to Calvin. Um, I decided I'd major in philosophy so that I would uh, be able to prove to everyone else why I was a Christian and discovered oh, pretty early on that actually that can't be done. <laughs> <laughs> why don't they say that at the beginning of choosing your major? That's right. That's right. But but I, I think like a philosophy degree from Calvin was one of the best things to happen um, intellectually for me, really engage a lot of ideas and and hone my own skills of reading and writing. And and now that translates into sermon writing. And um, and I so I, I learned a lot and I was also a bit unsettled in another respect i didn't know what i wanted to do and i liked science too so i kept taking these chemistry classes and the harder they got the more interesting they became so i um 
ended up my third year figuring out that if I spent an extra semester, I could get two for the price of one, a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Arts. So I finished off with an honors Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science from Calvin um, in philosophy and in chemistry. Um, Not a lot of people leave with those two degrees. I, I may or may not be the only one. I don't know. It'd be interesting to look. My father was gonna was gonna be a chemistry major before he went pre-sem. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. Well, the nice thing about chemistry is it's a it's a logical closed system. Yeah. And when you're dealing with philosophical ideas all the time, it was nice to kind of go into the lab and know that, you know, when you mix this with this. You, you get, get that. this. And that's what it is. <laughs> and that's right. <laughs> and I mean, but that kind of philosophy of science, history of science, um, how do we think about science? Why on earth does science, as we know it, arise out of a Christian culture in the first place? Um, those ideas will like be with me all through uh, up until now. I still think about those things. And we can get into that maybe a little later, but keep going. <laughs> with, with, with a little bit, a little bit of maybe if your church was smaller and dying, you could spend more time in the yeah, little right. corner of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> just, just talking. You're about... a little less successful pastor. You right. could have more fun. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, um, so my Calvin, I'm in my last semester, which is kind of the fall semester because I had a few classes to catch up to finish this ambitious project. And, um, and I'm sitting in Professor Thompson, Thomas Thompson, his religion department. Um, and he says to me, what years were you at Calvin? Uh, a two, uh, I was 99 to 2003. Okay. So I'm already at living stones by that point. So hey, all right. okay. uh, you're making me feel really old, Nate, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I got this gray beard. So you feel a good company. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sitting in Professor Thompson's uh, office and this, I'd say, I put this up here as uh, that experience in Mexico is kind of number one, as far as big um, spiritual experience for me. And, and then I, I put this up here as number two, because uh, he looks at me and he says, so, okay, you're almost done with this philosophy major. And, do you know what the Christian life is all about? You'd think I'd know, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you, I thought you were on fire at one point. For, That's you know. right. I was. And, you know, and now I've spent all this time at this wonderful institution learning all this stuff. And I, and I have to look at him and say, no. Mm. I, I don't know what the Christian life is all about. And in fact, I can't read the Bible anymore because I've been spending so much time reading philosophy books that when I try to read the Apostle Paul, he's incomprehensible to me. Mm. I mean, that was the problem I had come to uh, Professor Thompson's office with. Like, I, it, I, I just couldn't um, kind of thought myself into a dead end. Mm. Um, and he says, well... You have the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the Christian life is about learning to love. It's about learning to do that. And I was like, boom. 
you're on fire again. Right. Like, okay. <laughs> like now, now it's starting to make sense. Yeah. Like now this is starting to come together. I mean, the wisdom in those words, like I've, I've been a pastor now since, uh, for 14 years, thereabouts. I'm still unpacking the wisdom of those words. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, you spend every day trying to figure out new ways to love people and, yeah. um, and to love God. Yeah. Um, even as you learn more and more about God's love for you, which yeah. always tends to be a shocking revelation, even though you're supposed to know it. Yeah. <laughs> God actually desires you to have good things yeah. and imagine that. Yeah. Sometimes we have to imagine that. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I'd say that you know, it's the second one. And, and so then I don't know what to do. I'm homeless after I graduate with my two degrees. I'm living in the basement apartment of one of the philosophy professors. I'm like working odd jobs. I, I like, <laughs> I got no direction. Um, I had done an internship in a chemist. Wait, wait, wait. Company. You were at Calvin and you didn't land a wife in four years. I did not. You, I've you clearly been. did not understand. Yeah, I didn't understand what I was there for. The spawning ground. <laughs> that's right so yeah. anyway keep going i'm sorry so yeah so i'm still i'm single i'm now homeless uh well living in this basement apartment that basically was like a basement with a sink were you, were you covered with cheetos dust playing video games uh no i at least it wasn't your mother's basement that's right that's right it wasn't and and i i had learned enough over the years my dad was always renovating the houses that we lived in. So I knew a little about this and a little about that. And so I'd kind of worked a little bit on this guy's house um, in exchange for room and board and well, basically room. And I do other odd jobs for people. And I applied, I thought I maybe wanted to get into politics. So I, I tried to work for, uh, see if I could be an intern in the Columbus in the Ohio state government. Oh, my. God saved me from that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that didn't happen. Um, and then one of these, um, kind of to make a long story short, I end up uh, through a connection, end up getting a job at the University of Washington in a cancer research lab. Hmm. So then I spend two years at the University of Washington um, studying. Well, my degree was in chemistry. This is a biology lab. So I had a pretty... A steep um, learning curve but i and we're making believe it or not dna vaccines against cancer which didn't work <laughs> but we were trying well <laughs> we, we've had a lot of experience with vaccines that don't work <laughs> DNA. but anyway so i have we, so uh, much trouble with this video right <laughs> Uh, so I'm working here, University of Washington. I mean, that was fantastic. I mean, and actually it was another one of those events where um, I didn't understand the significance of it at the time. Like I, um, the, I could have launched from there into a PhD program in immunology or chemistry or biology or into the medical field. Like uh, I did get my name published on a paper um, having to do with some of the cancer research that we were doing. Um, I met some fantastic and really brilliant people. I mean, 
um, and, and just learning a lot and I could take classes for free. So I start taking engineering classes. So I'm like, well, okay. I mean, that's kind of interesting. And so I take this introduction to environmental engineering with this guy who's a Russian, he's a Russian professor and he was fascinating. And I got it. And I got a perfect score on his exam because I was a chemistry major and this was an undergrad, um, this was an undergrad class. And so all the chemistry on the exam, the engineering students were like in year one or year two, didn't know, but I knew it. And so it threw off his curve. And I think everybody in the class hated me, but, but I thought the class was fantastic. He said a prerequisite for this class is war and peace. So I read war and peace. It took me a year. Um, so you've got the philosophy and the chemistry. Right. That's right. And, and then I took a few more engineering classes. And by the time my two years were wrapping up at um, in Seattle, I've kind of got the, again, I got these two tracks. This is my problem, Paul. I like chemistry or philosophy. And then I go to Seattle and then it's like, do I want to stay in the sciences or, or on Monday nights, this group of Calvin grads, we get together at the, at the, what was it called? The pig and whistle. Hmm. And we'd have a, we, for Your theology on tap. And we just, you know, we're talking about, um, we're talking about our Christian faith. We're talking about what we learned at Calvin. We're talking about, um, I mean, Seattle's an interest was an interesting place. This is like early two thousands. You got Mark Driscoll is like going oh, yeah. strong in Seattle at this time, but you also have the, like the main line, um, like Episcopal churches having these beautiful evening song type mm. services. And, and, uh, and you have this, of course, huge, uh, you know, knowing as a, I don't really fit in either world. Like, yeah. you know, the Episcopal churches are, are completely progressive. Yeah. They're embracing basically everything. Uh, um, and then you've got Mark Driscoll, who we know I'm not, I'm not in his camp either, though he's reformed, but not like me. And, and, and that's what we were talking about. Like, how do we, uh, where do we fit in between these two camps? And, uh, and I was fascinating and I kept a little blog at the time. And we're like, uh, we're talking about our Christian faith and, uh, still kind of touch base with some of the people from that group from time to time. And, um, so then which way am I going to go? I got into Michigan tech for a master's in environmental engineering, a fascinating program, two years in the Peace Corps, building some sort of water treatment plant somewhere in the world, master's degree. And, uh, and I got into Calvin Seminary. And I'm you applied like, to both. I applied to both. Oh boy. Now, now you really got a decision to make. Now I got to decide. And, and that was the, it's kind of a funny way to talk about calling, but it was a sense of, if I don't go to seminary, I don't think I want to be a minister. That's not what I want to do. But if I don't go to seminary, I'm going to spend the rest of my life wondering if that's what I should have done. I don't spend the rest of my life wondering if I should have built a, a water well in a third world country. And I still don't. Um, and that was... That was it. And what so was I, Calvin Seminary like after all of that? Well, uh, it was in a real transition at that time. Well, oh. it always is. 
So when were you at? at, at so as a Calvin, so this would be two years. So 2006 to 2010, I'm a slow learner. It took me four years to get a oh, master's. Took me but, four years too. So you're in good company. <laughs> uh, but so I get to Calvin Seminary. Um, they are in a quarter system. And then they're switching then to a semester system oh. halfway through. Um, I had gone to Calvin and I, and I'd gone to Westminster and I'd go and that's where my grandfather ended up. Cause when he went to seminary, Calvin seminary also blew up, right? Yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> blows up semi-regularly <laughs> and so a little secret for those of you outside the crc right. <laughs> in the crc we have our blow-ups i don't right. know if you've noticed <laughs> we're having one now in fact but not at the seminary the whole thing right now right. but go on <laughs> so i had looked at westminster i had looked at western in holland i had looked at um at fuller and i looked at calvin and and i went to calvin and and ari later says to me um seminary is like medical school it's hard yeah. It, it, Calvin yeah. Seminary is hard. And at that time, yeah. yeah. And I said, sign me up. Like I'd worked with people who went to medical school. I knew what hard was. Yeah. And, and I knew that this would be hard and would challenge me intellectually as well as spiritually. And, and so that's, that was kind of the, well, that was one of the reasons to go to Calvin. Um, I also finally, after a long hiatus, joined the Christian Reformed Church in Seattle. <laughs> oh my! Uh, <laughs> Which one? Uh, Seattle First in Shoreline. Okay. okay. And uh, yeah, so classes Pacific Northwest helped yeah. foot the bill for me to go to Calvin Seminary, which has had its own blow up. But we'll keep going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just in Columbia uh, this week, so yeah. Um, oh boy. Yeah. But anyway, uh, they were good to me. It was good. Um, that was a good church when I was there to show they took me in. I'm a single guy, mm. you know, and there's the, the Klungels, George and Averna Klungel. They'd have me over every Sunday for dinner and I'd get mm. in trouble if I didn't go yeah. like, um, yeah, it was good. All right. And, so now you're at Calvin seminary. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I know, well, I'm not really admitting to myself that maybe being a pastor is the end of this road. I'm, I'm still thinking, oh, maybe I'll get a PhD in something. Maybe I'll, you know, I, I like, yeah, my grades have always been good. I've been blessed with that. And so my grades are good there too. And, um, but then I did an internship at, um, well, before I get to that, the other thing I discovered, like, is that all my friends were Canadian. Oh, all my seminary friends, almost all of them, not all of them, but yeah. most of them were Canadian. The, 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 when you go to Calvin seminary, you quickly, even though at Calvin college, you've got Canadian students at Calvin seminary, it's even more concentrated. You have more percentage of larger Canadians. And you also begin to see some of the cultural differences there. And they're not just cultural differences between the United States and Canada. There's some of that too, but there are also cultural differences in terms of when they emigrated the Netherlands and how that has impacted the two churches. I'm sorry. Here's an American speaking about the Canadian Christian Reformed Church again. Uh, my apologies. Be merciful. I'm an American to me. too, but I've been here for a long time. <laughs> I've actually done my whole ministry here. You so. get a pass. Uh, uh, so anyway, 
all my friends, it's um, almost all of my friends at Calvin Sem are Canadian. So when it comes to do an internship, I thought, well, I kind of like these Canadians that I'm meeting here. So maybe I'll do an internship in Canada. So I picked three churches on the list, all Canadian churches and Palmerston Christian Reformed Church in Palmerston, Ontario says they'll take me. Mm-hmm. So I do a summer there, meet this wonderful woman who I end up marrying to a year and a half later. You met a woman in the church. I did. You rascal. I took her, I preached my last sermon and then took her out to dinner when my internship was officially over. You, you did it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, oh boy. That's right. That's right. Um, See, that's why you got to get the wife before you leave seminary. Cause once you get into the church, you start uh, dating women within the church. Oh, especially now. I mean, 20 yeah. years ago, a little easier. Now it's like, Ooh. oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So, um, so then I finished that internship. I got one year of uh, seminary left to go. Of course, I got a lot more motivation to return to Canada now that uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got to drive it back and forth. Um, and then I took a call to First Christian Reform, uh, no, to uh, Maranatha Christian Reform Church in Woodbridge, and that's where I'm ordained. And I. Um, and that it was a multicultural church. Um, we started getting first-generation immigrants from all over. 14 first languages at one point in that wow. congregation. Um, and uh, Crystal and I get married in my kind of first summer there and um, start our lives there together in a little parsonage on the property. And um, now, now, you kind of glazed over something. Because I might, you know, our lives have been amazingly parable in, parallel in some ways. But, I mean, you got to do the internship to get the degree. But yeah. you don't have to go through the calling process. And yet you did. Yeah. But you just back into it? Or did you just say, well, here now I got a girlfriend. I get... So I had, yeah. I mean, that was a lot of ups and downs at- I mean, I was homeless after Calvin Seminary too for a little while. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad. I'm glad well, you became I, a minister. I, At least you can avoid homelessness with the parsonages. Right. Well, I guess I should like I homeless. That's the wrong word, and probably uh, some people may be sensitive to my use of that term. I did. I should say I was of no permanent address. I'm gonna need a trigger warning about all kinds of things on the on, on the front oh, yeah. of this video but yeah. anyway go on like i so i would i mean always had like a place to stay but not necessarily like i'd stay with friends i'd stay in a basement of people's houses i'd kind of work um uh, work for different people and they'd give me a little bit of a place to stay so i never was i wasn't yeah you weren't on probably, the streets it probably have no permanent address would be better than uh, like <laughs> than to say that i was homeless but um yeah i it, there were a couple of i applied to ontario churches um and there were a, a few different ones and uh, calvin seminary and i think this was kind of a one-off i don't know if they've done this again but it, when i was graduating they had a um they invited a bunch of vacant churches to come and do kind of a speed dating with the really? graduating class. Yep. And so vacant churches sent their two delegates um, to Grand Rapids and you could meet the 
the students who are going to be declared eligible for call and you could have just a quick conversation and you could make a list of six people you wanted to talk to. They would make a list of the six students they wanted to talk to that kind of mix it up. That's a pretty cool so, idea. Yeah. And so these two, uh, two women from Maranatha came down, turned out uh, Crystal, who's still my girlfriend at that time, was also visiting me that weekend. She probably got me the job because um, I had met with um, met with Shelley and Arlene from Maranatha Christian Reformed Church, and and uh, and they said, "Hey, we kind of want to talk to you a little bit more. Why don't we meet at um, at a coffee shop?" And I said, "Well, you know, my girlfriend's here. Why don't I bring her along too?" Okay, that's fine. So the four of us have this great little conversation and. They take the information back and I go out there to preach and, um, and then, yeah, end up accepting the call. They offered me, I probably shouldn't say how much they offered me, but if I wasn't living in the parsonage, I still would have been of no permanent address. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> they, uh, but they did what they could. I mean, it was a struggling church sure, and sure. they knew, yeah. um, and they, and by the time I left there, things started to uh, turn around and, um, and they took good care of us mm. as best, um, as they were able. And yeah. it was, a. it took me two years after I left there to kind of get over that. I didn't realize mm. taking a call from one church to another would, would be like that, but yeah, I'm a Vanderclay. I've never done it. Yeah. So. Oh Yeah. <laughs> we stay <laughs> just stay yeah 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 so um but that so was a chatham is your second church what's that yeah so chatham yeah. is your second how long have yeah, you yeah. been at chatham so seven years now seven years okay yeah, yeah. okay yeah i had right. well, um, well tell, tell me about um did you find have you found being a pastor satisfying oh yeah why i mean it's every day is different yeah i mean i'm dashing in here to start this call because i've got 20 students uh, in my church from a um a little program called school within a college where they these are students who didn't finish high school for whatever reason they get an opportunity to to kind of do it again and um it's run through the catholic school board but somehow they let this protestant minister help teach religion class i guess we don't tell but they don't know can't hurt them i don't know but well you went to catholic school you're all right i, I did I, yeah that's right uh, but anyway so they're uh, so i was just wrapping up with them before i came here uh, you know and they're from all different backgrounds i mean catholic yeah. schools of course in canada are public they're, they're publicly funded really they're, they're not private um uh, so that's right you have a very different it's very different than yeah. the american system yeah it's, so the Catholic school board basically means somewhere in your family, there's somebody who is Catholic. Uh, um, Not too many so, of them in the world. Yeah. Uh, so um, anyway, but that's just been fascinating. I mean, that's mm -hmm. fascinating. Talk to young people who um, yeah. have all kinds of different views about the world. Um, yeah. You know, switch gears from that to, you know, visiting an older person who's been in the hospital and is dying and, you know, has been a Christian his entire life. Like, yeah. you know, and then the next day you're talking to a young couple who's expecting their first child. I mean, every day is, is different. Um, yeah. and, and I had then a chance to, to just to learn and to study and to read and 
to have a book allowance like i know that's a cool thing <laughs> it is a cool thing <laughs> it begets what you see behind <laughs> me right. where's your bookshelf it's probably on the nate that it... i don't know if i can show it to there, you, we, go. there we go <laughs> he's, he's just getting started <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well now we got all these electronic books too so yeah you don't see them as easy but yeah so um one maybe before we um leave woodbridge and move over to Tro to um to chatham here there was a uh, um a lot of cross-cultural mission work happening there too you gotta put down your camera and Grizz, okay grim grizz is gonna complain because they're is that better that's better yeah, yeah. okay because it's the upper third oh but, yeah and and, <laughs> and we had a, we had an israeli that was in the bottom of the camera and there's oh. been no end of complaints on the channel about that so maybe a little bit lower too yet okay let's uh, see what i can do here um that's yeah, too low maybe that's a little too low so let, let's see i'm just mucking up the conversation because Grim Grizz, that those uh, savings throws against mind control, they're total bullshit. They're total bullshit. That's <laughs> all woo. T Grog should be on that Grim Grizz channel. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so a lot of cross cultural work happening in uh, in Toronto, and um, the one story quickly. There was a woman who was a Christian woman married to a a. Um, he was a uh, Pakistani Muslim man. And they were neighbors of one of the members of the church there. And she got cancer and then she passed away. Mm. And he said, she was a Christian yeah. and I want her to have a Christian funeral. So yeah. she talks, so he talks to their neighbor who, uh, who was members uh, still, I think are members there. And, and so he talks to me and says, will you do a funeral for this woman? And I had met her a couple of times, I think, before she passed. And I said, sure. Yeah. So now I'm in the funeral chapel with Muslims from Pakistan, Muslims from Afghanistan. The Afghanistan war is going on. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, like my people, I'm an American, yeah. are at war with your people. Yeah. And I'm a Christian and you're Muslims. Yeah. And here we are in this place where this woman has died and, and they were very gracious. And, um, I talked about what Christians believe about death and resurrection. And, and we went to the graveside and we, uh, they honored their tradition of shoveling in the dirt into the hole, which they did for this woman. And, um, gave me a hug afterwards and, mm. And then I went over to somebody's house and here I am having, uh, you know, a, a funeral lunch with, again, people from Afghanistan, people from Pakistan, people, um, and uh, just a chance just to meet uh, as people. Yeah. And, and so when I think about, you know, you asked me about kind of being a pastor and you get to do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get to meet such interesting people. And you yeah. you know, and in all my interactions with people, people are always endlessly interesting. And just yeah. because somebody says, like, I'm a Christian, that doesn't mean anything about what they actually believe. Yeah. I'm sure you figured that out. <laughs> like, <clears throat> 
<laughs> don't tell anybody. We're trying to fix that in the Christian Farm Church, you know. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, it's true, and it's true for Muslims too. It's true for yeah. Hindus. It's true for yeah. Buddhists. It's true. Like um, I did uh, in seminary, I did uh, clinical pastoral education at Swedish Hospital in Seattle, where there was a Buddhist chaplain and I don't know a, a Jewish chaplain, and I think my supervisor was this Eastern Orthodox who reconnected with her jewish roots and became a jewish like so then went to synagogue but was ordained in the unitarian church i'm not quite sure her whole story but like you interact with people all across the spectrum and um yeah it's a it's a privilege and yet you're Christian reformed. Let's try to save your career here a minute. Um, what? So, so what, everything you just said is true, and yet you're a minister in the Christian Reformed Church. Right, because when I, I pray and ask God about that, God says, I made you a Protestant minister. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so you do story. believe stuff. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> See, one of the one of the interesting things about you and I is both of us have grew up very early on in, I mean, northern New Jersey is an astoundingly diverse culturally, mm -hmm. religiously, economically, just about any way you can imagine. You know, it's just off the bubble in terms of New York City. So while New York is going through these, you know, mega things, New Jersey is just getting all of the spillover with um you know all different things and of course you have norway and you know i have the dominican republic and then california i mean both of us just very early on got a real sense of and a real sort of a deep intuitive understanding of culture and yet both of us also are you know happily at least i'll speak for myself happily within the christian reformed church mm -hmm. there really isn't another denomination i would like to be a part of and you know, even, and both of us are moderators on CRC Voices, which I, I, you know, after I talked about it a lot, we got a lot of new people in it and that's caused a little chaos. And I haven't been a very good moderator for the last few months because it's well, got a little... I have been 60 days away. Poor Bill, poor oh. Bill. Um, <laughs> hold down the fort. He's getting old. He can't hold it down forever. <laughs> no, he can't. <laughs> um, but so... But I think what you just described, you know, very much my experience too. And of course, I got this also from my father, who I watched. Um, and so maybe, you know, maybe we should, and, and yet, you know, we would, you know, at this point, we would, a lot of people watching this would probably say that you and I should be at the vanguard of certain causes, which we don't really have to name because it's not just one cause, certain mm -hmm. causes in the Christian Reformed Church. And, and you know, I'll just speak about myself. We'll see what you want to do with this. I don't really feel myself to be a conservative, partly because of my upbringing, because it was so broadly open. But yeah, I am also quite skeptical of the progressivism that I've seen sort of take root in the Christian Reformed Church and and play around and so you know now with all of this talk about you know i have to do a little figuring about confessionality and subscription i mean oh boy this this is a hard hard thing for all the things that you just recognized and and this is in some ways you know where the christian reform church is at but also 
where now you haven't watched a lot of my videos, but you, you've got some understanding of what's going on in this corner and everything. Because he's actually got a real church he has to keep up, not a dying church that gives him all kinds of free time. But, um, I mean, we're sort of in a strange spot right now. Because on one hand, you can go to a Pakistani funeral and say, you know, these are Muslims, these are Pakistani, I'm at war with them, but we're, you know, they've welcomed me into their home and they've all, they've asked me to perform this ceremony and we've sort of, we've sort of mixed how we participate in it. And um, I don't feel myself at war with them, yet I, I am very much still a confessional Christian and I have beliefs and affirmation. I believe in the church and I work in the church. And, and yet here I just taught a class of kids in a Roman Catholic program and if it's okay with the Catholics, it's okay with me. So, I mean, I think you and I both have some of that. And so this moment in the Christian Reformed Church, and I think it's a little different in California, although California and Canada in some ways are a little closer to each other than, let's say, maybe the heart of Grand Rapids or the suburbs of Grand Rapids. So I don't know. Yeah, I think you know what I'm saying. I don't know if anybody else does. And that's why we're CRC, Paul. <laughs> Think that's the only place you can find somebody who might understand what you're trying to talk about. Like I, I'm very sensitive. Um, picking up on what you said, I'm very sensitive to be captured. I don't mm. want to be captured. Yeah. And I think all maybe all people feel this way. I don't want to be labeled, and I don't, and I don't really want to be. I mean, remember that kind of mooks and meeks mooks or whatever. Nights. Yeah. Uh, uh, like. I don't, I don't want to be a pawn in somebody else's fight. And, and I noticed that kind of early on in my internship, actually, as a pastor, where, you know, you, you think in seminary, oh, I'm going to be the pastor. So that means I'll be the final authority on, on all these things, right? <laughs> Forget about it. So um, completely laughable once you become a pastor, right. especially a certain kind of pastor right. of a certain kind of church. Because you know that like, like some people focus on the family as their thing. Some people creation magazine is their thing. Some people like apologetics is their thing. Some people, um, you know, it's it, it, Christian radio is the only thing they're ever going to listen to. For some people, it's, it, it's, it's PBS or it, right. CBC. And, and that is, that's forming their Christian identity. And, um, and then to be, and then there's kind of this, uh, some of those parachurch ministries operate under this well if your church is a true church then they should be teaching this right and, yeah. and i don't but stuff drives me batty because i'm like there's um uh, uh, these issues are far more complicated than what this uh, one particular ministry is making them out to be yes um and or christian youtube is making them out right, to be exactly and I don't want to be, I don't want to be captured. Instead, I made, I mean, we talk about like the covenant of office bearers, right? Like, and in some respects, I have been captured. Yes. I got down on my knees in Monterey, Mexico and said, I belong to Jesus. Yeah. He's captured me. Yeah. And I don't want these, uh, whatever it is, whatever your cause is uh, to capture me. I'm, I want to learn how to love you. I mean, that's back. I mean, it all ties together, right? <laughs> um, 
but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be on your team when you're going off and doing this other thing. Yeah. I might be, I might not be. Yeah. And I hope that you can give me the freedom to, um, to talk to you about why that's so important to you yeah. without recruiting me to be on your team necessarily. Or giving and, me an ultimatum. Yeah. And I feel like this, I mean, one of the things I love about the Christian Reform Church is we have the fight. Yeah. 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 Um, and we talk like, and that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. And we're talking it through and we're, it's hard. Yeah. It is hard. But when I look at, yeah, I could go, I'd probably fit in okay at a conservative denomination that doesn't want to have this fight, but I might be discontent, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> because I'll always know, like I, and maybe this is what makes why I like being a moderator on CRC Voices is I, I know that I will think myself right back into that spot that I was when I was at the end of my philosophy degree. And I need somebody to say, have you thought about this differently? Yeah. And I don't know if, what that makes me. It doesn't make me a diehard liberal and it doesn't make me a diehard conservative either. Um, and maybe that's all the, you know, is it philosophy? Is it chemistry? Is it theology? Like I, I want to learn about all of it. Yeah. And it all comes from God. Yeah. 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 No, that's good. That's good. And, and so part of, you know, part of this fight in the Christian reformed church is I've long thought that in some ways the fight isn't about the things that people are fighting about as much as it's, how, in fact, do we fight? Mm -hmm. How how well do we process? And how well can we... Because there are always, you know, and some people say, well, there ought to be no borders or boundaries. And it's like, no, uh, no, that's that's that, that really doesn't work. Um, it really doesn't work. You need borders and boundaries because you need identity. Um, for the same reason you need skin. You need to know where you start and you stop. And to a certain degree in some levels of analysis, yada, yada, yada. But um, I've long thought, you know, this went back to the Belhar um, conversation in the CRC when I watched that because it's like, oh, this group in the denomination that has for the most part been fairly dismissive of confessionalism now wants to introduce a new confession. And it's like, that, that smells a little funny. And 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 nothing against the Belhar, but I I saw the way that they went about it, and I thought, if you if you really want to convince the confessionalists in the denomination to add a fourth one, they're the people that really need to be championing it because they're the confessional people. But mm -hmm. you're sort of wanting to, and plus you had the Christian Reformed Church, unlike the Reformed Church in America uh, is younger. And so when you get to these confessional issues, even for a very confessionally uh, self-conscious denomination, there's surprisingly little procedural mechanism around this confessionality, which is something that we're discovering in this current fight. Like how does Synod take out a local church or a local pastor? You know, and that's why this the, the kinism fight was so interesting because boop, there it happened. It's like, 
whoa, wait a minute, um, do process anyone? Or you just sort of just sort of intimidated them into leaving anyway, which is probably something they were probably going to do anyway. But and so this is this is sort of a maturing moment, but it, it comes at a time when all such denominations like the Christian Reformed Church at far deeper levels are an existential crisis, which is why I've, I've used the analogy before that. I mean, the Christian Reformed Church in some ways is, is so weak that this, this same-sex marriage debate is sort of like COVID. Um, it's not that the it's not that the thing itself is so strong. It's that, you know, that disease wipes out elderly people with comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and so now we've had two synods in a row that basically said, yep, CRC is not going to be an affirming denomination and we're not really going to tolerate it in its midst. But now we have the far trickier conversation of saying, how do we know what we will and won't tolerate? What really are in these confessions? Because, yeah, you know, the progressives have a point that we kind of jury-rigged the Heidelberg Catechism to, you know, sneak this one in. So what about all the other stuff the Heidelberg Catechism says? Or shock of shocks, the Kansas of Dort. How do we really feel about those? And how can we process this? And are, in fact, the issues in these confessions really the issues that many of our local churches are actually working with? Because these confessions are the, um, the products of past church fights. And what happens sort of like the, you know, the, um, you know, if you look at plate, these theories of plate tectonics and volcanoes, that there's actually a lot of things going on. So why do you get, you know, let's say I was just in the Cascades. Why do you get these, these very strange, beautiful and kind of dangerous volcanoes popping up in the middle of these other things? And why is Yellowstone this way? Because... It isn't to say that there aren't deeply important issues buried and expressed within those confessions, but for the most part, the Christian Reformed Church isn't fighting like the Synod of Dort in the 17th century or the Reformational period in the 16th century with respect to these issues. So, and, and then, but part of the way politics works is that you know, even me talking this way makes certain camps of the Christian Reformed Church nervous because it's just easier to keep saying all the words that we've always said, keep saluting to them, and so say we all. Yeah, but do we really mean, are we really sure that what what we're really doing so perfectly aligns with the 17th and 16th century and that it's really the same thing because when i read the educational materials in the christian reformed church from the 1960s i find them fascinating i remember reading them as a child and i look at them and i read them now and it's like you know we wouldn't write these today like we did 
so actually lately i've i've got a i've got seven people in a new members process now I, my dying church it's like just get this church just never dies these things are durable these little churches and um you know so god keeps sending people to churches yes he does he does <laughs> he does and and so and so I really want to use the Heidelberg Catechism because I love the Heidelberg Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism is an amazing document. Every time I teach the Heidelberg Catechism, it isn't necessarily the confessionalists that light up, although many of them do. Mm. It's the new people that light mm. up, and they're mm. like, "I really like that catechism," and it's like, mm -hmm. "Oh boy, isn't this interesting?" Mm -hmm. And so then, so then I was thinking, okay, then I was actually thinking, should I do a course on the Heidelberg Catechism on my main YouTube channel? And I yeah. thought, oh, this. On one hand, part of me is like. That would be so much dang fun. Another part of me is like, this could get me in real trouble. I like talking about Jordan Peterson. It only gets me in a little trouble. This could get me in real trouble because now we're talking about the Heidelberg Catechism and we're engaging those issues. And I'm in, Paul. Yeah. Let's yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah. So then, so then I thought, so then actually a friend of mine, Joel uh, Vanderwerken over in, um, in Fairlawn CRC in Whitensville, he had, he did it on YouTube. And it's just a little channel, of course. So he is a slide. And so I was listening to him and I was thinking. So then I got some new book recommendations beyond just Kyvan Hovens. Yeah. Um, and I saw, oh, Kevin DeYoung did a little thing on the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's actually a few of them out there. And so then I started reading them and it was like, isn't it interesting? What does it say that we have to write study guides for the Heidelberg Catechism? Because we have to explain it anew because when in fact that's why the catechism itself was written right. <laughs> because they had to explain it anew and because yeah. in the palatinate he was trying to get his the people were sort of fragmented yeah. he said i need a document that can pull people together and that's how that document arose mm -hmm. and one of the best-selling documents in you know it's one of the most published documents in the world at this point and it's a it's just an astoundingly amazing document, but you start digging into it and connecting it to life now, which is what Christian Reformed ministers have been doing all along. But for me to do it in this little corner with all of the, and at this time in the Christian Reformed Church, it's like, it'd be easier to do it if I was retired, but I'm almost there. <laughs> So anyway, I'll shut up now because this isn't about me. I, I do enough talking on my channel. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've been doing this little series on for Lent on love. And one of the places where I've landed on this has been um, that the commandments provide a, a context or an environment where love can flourish but you don't actually love someone simply because you follow the commandments. Really? Um, oh, that's really good. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, this is the complaint of like Isaiah, you, you serve me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Uh, you know that you, um, but of course you need, like I was talking about love your neighbor and that Leviticus passage, it talks about not lying to your neighbor, not stealing from them. And it's like, well, you have to do these things first. Cause it's pretty hard to convince your neighbor. You love them. If you're robbing them, like it's, <laughs> but, but just because you're like, I don't, I'm not lying and I'm not stealing it. 
doesn't mean you like your neighbor either. Um, but this, and I think in a way we can look, we can use that analogy for like the Heidelberg catechism is, you know, it's, it's what sets the context for this little group of people to love each other and love God. Yeah. Um, and to worship together. Um, but if it, if you try to make it beyond that, like the only way to love God is, um, you know, or we love God by following all these rules, we've got it wrong. Yeah. You know, these rules, uh, this uh, provides the context for our loving God. Um, well, I, I'd say, you know, we do love God by following all these rules, but now we're outing ourselves as true Calvinists. Yeah. Because we see that the law is a means by which we can express our gratitude yeah. to yeah. God. Yeah. And of course, yeah. anybody who's taken Christian Reformed Church basic Reformed dogmatics would say, yeah, isn't that what we've always said? Yes, yeah. it is what we've always said, which is yeah. why we're both Christian Reformed ministers. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and we believe it. That's right. <laughs> we actually that's believe it. Yeah, yeah. So, no, that's, and, you know, which is why, I mean, it was years ago when I was, I, I came here after the Dominican Republic and I started, you know, preaching and, and one of, one of the, one of the guys who left the church in a, a certain, but he, he, he was kind of pulled out by the rest of his family. But he, he said to me, he said, you know, you're a good preacher, but your, 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 your conclusion and your application is, um, and, and I think that's still the case. And that's when I started ending all. And also, I, I also heard, you know, Andy Banstra, he was gone by the time you were at Calvin Seminary. He, he was he was basically saying he said you know to a lot of us he said you know the christian reform church says it wants to be about grace but when i listen to a lot of christian reform sermons i hear a lot of law yeah. and um a little lutheran magic in there yeah. and and so i thought and i was listening to a lot of tim keller too and i thought i need to i need to have a rubric by which i make sure that the gospel and that's again a deeply reformed thing. A gospel is in every sermon of mine, and there, there's actually something. And so that's why that's when I started ending all of my sermons with misery, deliverance, gratitude, misery, deliverance, gratitude. Mm -hmm. So if there's, you know, when I listen to when when it it's it's such a humbling thing as a minister after you spend all of this time and effort and a career learning how to preach to hear from people what they can actually spit back to you about what you said. <laughs> that is a humbling so, experience. That's, so that's when I, so that's when I started, you know, I, and I also learned that from George W. Bush, the first, the second Bush president. I, I listened to him. I thought, the dude repeats himself all the time. And the more I thought about it, I thought it's genius. Yeah. People listen poorly. Right, and right. what they really begin to pick up on are the patterns. So right. that's when I decided Almost every sermon, I'm going to end with misery, deliverance, gratitude, misery, deliverance, mm. gratitude, mm. because this format of the Heidelberg Catechism, I think, is so absolutely basic to the insight that the Reformers had on, on holding back idolatrous religion and receiving the kingdom of God like a little child. So anyway, mm. you got me preaching, Nate. I got to shut up more. I'm fouling up this whole thing oh no it's good it's good i'm learning stuff that's what i was hoping would happen when i came here oh another and you're breaking exodus 90 for it i am that's true <laughs> um not just george w bush but i mean this is trump 
I mean, this is yeah. Trump's game, right? Yeah. Like you, yeah. Li- you don't have to listen to the long rambling speeches that he gives or even follow his Twitter X feed. It's more China, 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 trade deals, border, like Build a wall. Just, yeah, wall, like just Little these key words yeah. that he just drops and drops and drops, right? And it doesn't really matter what words happen in between. <laughs> and I think he knows that too. Yeah. Uh, yep. Um, yep. And and in fact, the media, which hates him, aids and abets him. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I, I was astounded. It's like these people they hate Trump. So what do they do? They keep talking about him. They keep soundbiting him. It's like you fools, you fools. You don't know that you have made this man. You oh, have yeah. made this man. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a an. Um, Aaron Renz um, dropped a little email by a guy named John. I think it's John Seal, S E E L. But he wrote a little piece on Trump. And I thought it was really interesting. He talked about how um, he he didn't reference Ian McGilchrist exactly, but he was kind of in that same area of saying, we have one part of our brain that looks at specific facts and deals with facts. And then you have the other part of your brain that deals with the bigger picture, the, the narrative, like how does it all fit together? And he says, so Trump is not a facts person. He's a, a big narrative person. Right. And, and so he is constantly setting the narrative. Yeah. And, and when you try to attack narrative with facts, well, he's already prejudiced prejudiced you against against that. Like, you know, he's he, fake news. Like, yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he had he said because you have to fight narrative with narrative. Yeah. And I I think when and that's why he wins. I think because yeah. those who run up against him, whether they're like in the primaries or whether they're in the Democratic Party, they don't. They're not giving a compelling narrative nope. of a better America nope. than what he's saying. Yep. And and so you can attack his facts and yeah, he committed maybe he's allegedly committed all kinds of crimes. And I mean you can but nobody cares about that nope. Nope. because nope. he's still like he's defining reality in a way that seems to make more sense to the people who follow him than others. Yep. And there was a um I'm curious kind of what you think about this, but there's this guy who's a RCA guy who uh, is a reporter and his name always slips my mind, but, but he made this provocative claim that the mega church prepared evangelical Christians for Trump. And, and and he said the mega church and I read that there was an article that, that he wrote about that. Yeah. yeah. I I read it. I read it. Yeah. and he talked about like, I mean, this is going to get, I mean, there's going to be a lot of crazy comments on this video probably, but, but he talked about how like the mega church pastor it's in some cases is not necessarily your most or morally upright guy. And I mean, and we've seen referencing Mark Driscoll earlier. And I mean, that guy, even before his fall, he could, like he'd get on the radio in Seattle and he'd go after the LGBT community every chance he got. I mean, he was rude and obnoxious sometimes to reporters. Like, I mean, and he, but that like, what that, 
so this guy's argument was if your pastor can get away with this kind of language and sometimes in some cases kind of behavior as we know is that parts of the megachurch movement has become unraveled um you're prepared now to look past these moral failings when you're looking for a political leader i thought it was an interesting argument but that's also a rabbit trail we should get back to well it's 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 a helpful reminder. It's also the case that you're, I mean, so Mark Driscoll, we can use Mark Driscoll in this because, and, and this is going to be the same for Trump, those same failings will be the seeds of his demise. And they currently are. I mean, he's got how many things against him um, you you just, I mean, Mark Driscoll was basically taken out by himself mm-hmm. that you, and, and this is, and and what that, what, what I think you, you painted there is also true of churches. So, you know, one of the, and you watch, you, you watch enough of, you, you see enough of this little corner to know, you know, some of the characters that I'm talking about and stop me if, if I get into some that you don't, but Sam, the 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 biblical universalist, you know, definitely one of the sharpest guys in the corner. Um, he and Luke, you know, Luke, another guy who used to used to go to uh, uh, um, Piper's church in Minneapolis. These guys have also noted that when when churches when churches take advantage of people's loyalty and abuse them that always those that those bills always come due mm-hmm. because you can you know it's one thing as long as washington as long as these things don't necessarily impact my life too much you know you might there might be rumors about the pastor that he's kind of a flirt and you know he's he's yeah you know he's got a he's kind of close to some of these women in the church but if he stops start sleeping with your mom or starts trying to seduce your sister stuff's going to get real very quick mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. one of the things that that Sam and Luke I think both of whom are um you know have have very complex stories that require a fair amount of processing but I'm sort of giving them just, just sort of pointing to that when churches betray trust the trust of and the, the trust of its its loyal people and i think this is part of what happened in has been had been happening in the christian reformed church too in terms of um in terms of certain people of high status who who simply you know for 50 years the church would always sort of uh, conservatives would complain about some things but and and then of course when 2022 happened a lot of people were just in shock. I wasn't shocked at all. I, I've been watching. I've been watching this thing develop and saying, "You cannot treat the rest of the denomination like you've been treating them. You've you you cannot simply dismiss conservatives as idiots and fools. That's you're going to pay a price for that. And when you 
when you betray loyalty and trust, there's a there's a cumulative cost that happens in this. And of course, you know, the 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 next election in the United States is going to be a, an election about Donald Trump. Now, if the Democrats could actually put somebody in as their candidate who could who people would think about in some other terms than not Trump. I mean, and, and the way it's getting with Biden, it's like you got elected as not Trump. And the older he gets, the more he's not Trump instead of something that he is. But the Democrats don't seem to care. Their entire plan for winning the election is not Donald Trump. And so, but this happens in churches all the time. You're right about that person's insight that mega churches have understood the dynamic that you point to with respect to Trump. Because mega churches have, for the most part, been non-denominational, which means, yeah, we got a little list of, you know, certain creedal elements you're not going to get rid of, like the Trinity. Um, so they're going to have a very basic, broad, evangelical, Bible-believing statement of faith on their website. But they understand that, like Trump, as long as the as long as the lead pastor on stage in a staged way projects a certain sensibility that hits a certain cultural group, megachurches don't really take over an ecosystem the way we've seen other traditions do over long periods of time. Megachurches don't really take over an ecosystem. They just hit a certain sensibility for a certain population well enough that, you know, all those other confessional things, we don't worry about that because here the pastor and especially the music project the sensibility and give people a vibe and a sense and an emotion. I mean, the megachurch has always to a degree understood what radio stations figured out, music radio stations a long time ago, that this is actually the way to appeal to a group of people. And now I say this having talked to James Wellman, who he's been on the channel. He wrote a, a really good book, High on God, where he, as sort of a post-Christian mainliner who very much had a mainline sensibilities about peace, justice, racial reconciliation. He looked at the mega churches and said, these guys actually serve the poor, do racial reconciliation, and do many of these things a lot better than the mainline. Mm -hmm. So this is an enormously complex thing, but your point here about Donald Trump and the connection with mega church pastors really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it puts the Christian Reformed Church as sort of a nerdy, you know, we we just we, the Christian Reformed Church in the in the eighties when you were in seminary, um, or uh, before you were in seminary when you were in college, the Christian Reformed Church saw this happening, saw its own demographic thing going, and thought we got to get on this main line, we got to get in this um, not main line, <laughs> some wanted to do the main line, we got to <laughs> get on this mega church bandwagon. <laughs> And what they dis and what I discovered watching the Christian Reformed Church try to do this, we didn't have a stomach for it. Yeah, we just yeah. couldn't. We just couldn't. 
we, we just couldn't be enough like Donald Trump or the skinny jeans mega church pastor. We did something in us was like, I'd so love to be that kind of successful, but my conscience won't allow me. Not not to say anything about those mega church. It's just not who we are. Yeah, yeah. I I I think it's interesting to scratch that a little bit because I had a similar sense that you know. <laughs> I've always been part of small churches and, and that means everybody knows you and everybody has to carry their weight. Like, you know, we, we have one paid employee here, me. Yep. And we have a custodian that we hire to help out and keep things clean. And we have a secretary who we hired a, a, for a few hours a week to, make sure that kind of work gets done. But but everything else, I mean, it's done by volunteers. It's done by people who know each other. It's done by grandparents who are uh, babysitting their own ch- grandchildren in the babysit. It's yep. it, like it's um, and a lot of Christian formation takes place because of that. Like, you know, it's one thing to learn uh, this from a, a good sermon or be edified by the music or whatever. It's something else to now I got a room of three and four year olds and we got to talk about, oh, what's the story this week? Potiphar's wife. <laughs> that would uh, that would happen to my wife a while ago. <laughs> now we got to tell these kids the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. <laughs> what did she it. want him to do? <laughs> but you know you like when you're in a small church like you you have to you have to take your faith and you have to figure out how am i going to live it out yeah. i mean not that that doesn't happen in a mega church but but i think i think it's different when when it's smaller when everybody knows everybody when um you know you're you're thrust into a position of leadership and having never held one before because you said yes. And the other guy said, no, like, uh, um, and then, then here you are. And we're going to try to figure this out together. Uh, yeah. I mean, kind of these big questions of the, why am I CRC? I don't know if anybody else would have me, uh, but <laughs> they couldn't kick me out. Cause I was always part of them. Right. <laughs> I, always, I mean, I, it's, uh, it's always, but I, I look at the like the Heidelberg. I really appreciate and the Canons adored. Is is it? I mean, that's. I think it was a stumbling. It was it hard for all of us who ended up signing the form of subscription. Is all right. I'm signing up for double press predestination. Okay, how can I make go. sense of that? Yeah, <laughs> and then how can I teach it? Right. Yeah. Exactly. But um, but here we are, and yeah. And, but I find like it does provide when there's a, just a, an openness within that confessionality to explore, you know, like the CRC doesn't take a hard line on evolution or creationism. If you want to pick an older debate, um, it, it, um, for the most part until recently pretty much took a, what was understood to be a middle line on homosexuality as well, going all the way back to 1973. That was, um, and even now I think, you know, the primary question is uh, on the church level is still what it was in 1973, the pastoral care question. 
Like, how do we take care of these people who are among us now? Um, and that, like, I guess that's what uh, I don't want to say keeps me here because I don't really don't have any desire to leave. I, I, I like being a CRC minister. I like my contacts and, and being part of this denomination. Um, I like my colleagues. Yeah. I do. I like my colleagues. Yeah. I, and I like them. And, and to and to think that a whole bunch of people that I really like a lot are no longer going to be my colleagues. Yeah. That that hurts, too. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah. Well, I wanted to switch gears a little bit sure. in the last half hour here um, into one of into a little bit more philosophy and some of the things you like to talk about on your okay. corner. Um, so my father has been diagnosed with Parkinson's and Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he's struggling with that. And um and his, my mother will watch this and she'll be sorry too. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's doing okay for now. He's doing okay. He's still living on his own. He's still like yeah. Um but it's it's a progressive disease, as you know. Uh, but his doctor is this guy named Dr. Espe. And Dr. Espe wrote a book in which he wrote, Parkinson's doesn't exist. So my dad's Parkinson's doctor doesn't believe that Parkinson's exists. And he's a neurologist at the University of Cincinnati Medical System. And this is interesting, Paul, because I think that what he's what he's scratching at is what we scratch at in this little corner all the time is what's the relationship between the um the metaphorical world the symbolic world and the world of like what i can get my hands on what I can touch what i can feel and so in this book i can see like I can see that he should have done what I did and had a philosophy degree as well as a science degree. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I could see him grasping at this, like we have this construct called Parkinson's and we have these patients who have these things like tremors in their hands and, um, and eventually it's a progressive disease and, and we can mark kind of the stages. But, but on another level, it's an elusive thing. Like we dig into the brain and we, and we dig into the genetics and, and as much as we want to say with certainty, you have Parkinson's because you have these um, plaques that are destroying your neurons. We run the experiment and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and, and so his sol provocative solution in this book is we might have to kind of reject the label because the label's getting us in trouble. Like our, this, and he doesn't have the language for it, but you do. And that's the thing like uh, this, uh, you know, this, this thing called Parkinson's, which exists in the world, like Jonathan Peugeot says, Santa Claus exists too. Like it's the same, uh, it's that same kind of thing. And there is an existence to it, but, but it's starting to not, um, not connect anymore. And uh, yeah, I, but I, I think this, like, what's the relationship and so Espe's book, he goes in this direction of basically like, I'm just going to dismiss all myth is myth, right? Like the world of gods, the world of where Parkinson's exists, like all of that is myth. And I'm just going to stick to 
scientific what can i investigate and yeah. then i learned that actually we don't know much about brain biology at all um and and then i want to push back and say but actually that what you're dismissing there's truth there too right like c.s lewis there's yeah. christianity is the only true myth like there's um but it I think I bring him out because he's a doctor it, it, just to say that lots of people are wrestling with the meaning crisis, so to speak. Like, yes. Lots of people are wrestling with this. Like, it, you know, we have these theories of the world, but how do they relate to the actual world? And, and are any of them true? And I don't know if there's anything in what I just said. that you No, I'm well, I, that, that is, I mean, it's so difficult to talk about these things because part of the question is how to talk about them. And as you know, you and I both know that when you're actually dealing with what, when I say regular people, I don't mean necessarily a strata of people. I mean, a plurality of people living in very different parts of the world that are also interconnected. And so then you look for, I, I was just, this morning, Luke was doing his live stream thing, and we've got a new guy around named Tigrog who is sort of fit in. He sat in the chair of a physical reductionist that wants to, you know, sort of, you know, wring all the woo out of this little corner. And it's like, well, that 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 ship sailed a long time ago, buddy, because this corner is made up of people who used to think just like you and have all changed their mind. And they've all changed their mind around things like this, because... You know, and it's it's happening all over the culture. And what's interesting is that there's probably not a an area of our culture that is more salient to us with respect to the reality of I'm gonna not gonna use science because actually I was thinking I should make a video about that of technology because what we're really talking about is medical technology, sanitary technology, sort of a whole matrix of technologies that uh brought widespread public health up a significant degree from a few hundred years ago and even even a hundred years ago antibiotics many of these things and so on one hand there's probably no area of life as salient to us that demonstrates the argument of the new atheists or the the people who believe in science as an idol than medical technology yet it is we at the same time because of our faith in it it is being exposed to more and more people on a regular basis our expectations have been raised so high that okay so ross douthat writes a book about lyme's disease and discovers that this is not so easily treated and many of us i've got a cousin who um, you know, his his health has been significantly curbed, and at least one of the aspects of that was Lyme's disease. Uh, my sister, um, when she was in uh when she was a young adult, she was a the uh a recruiter at RBC, then um now Kuiper College, she got mono and then chronic fatigue, and discovered that, oh, the regular doctors could actually do very little for her. So she starts setting out into the frontier of woo and homeopathy and all of these things because the medical doctors don't help. 
I've got someone in my church right now who he believes he's got a COVID vaccine injury. And I think he's got some real grounds for believing that. But he goes to his doctor and his doctor has absolutely nothing for him. And I've been watching him over the last two years degenerate quite significantly, can't get a job. Um, one of my deacons suggested he apply for disability because actually if you apply for disability, then the state really gets interested in what you do and don't have. I've got another person with long COVID. Um, and and what, what we're discovering is that the, the medical establishment is bumping into all kinds of things like this. You know, now we've got this, we've got autism and whatever that means. And so what we're, what we're discovering is that this, you know, then you can look, if you dig, I don't know if you've seen anything that I've, I haven't touched on Michael Levin too often, but like in Michael Levin studies these flatworms where they're genetically identical they're in some ways sort of immortal. They don't age. But he wondered why do some have round heads and why do some have arrowheads or two heads? Or I mean, and so then he gets into this the actual the electrical signals that are going on and realizing that when we saw when we discovered genetics, we thought, oh, now suddenly here we have the key. We can we can reduce it to these four letters and the sequence of these four letters. And then discovering that these two creatures have exactly that same sequence, but they have demonstrably different outcomes. What is going on? And then we begin to discover that, oh, when you reduce everything down to one variable, which is what science tries to do and what technology tries to leverage, you basically have dismissed all multivariant questions so then you try to add more variables but every time you add a new variable we get back to john verbeke language you have combinatorial explosiveness and of course every chemist knows this because on one hand you're doing your chemistry and you have all of the you're doing this math between all of the compounds but on your paper you're dealing with pure compounds but if you're actually doing in the world you say well, we're probably not going to have a pure in this test tube. It's not really going to be pure. It just has to be pure enough, which means now suddenly we're into philosophical pragmatism, which is the science of enoughness. <laughs> because we we actually, this is again, combinatorial explosiveness. We actually don't have enough lifetime to worry about purity because we can't get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we can't measure it we can't experience it we can't arrive at it so we have to deal with the science of enoughness which means then statistics mm -hmm. and well what does that mean with respect to medicine it means that well when we put this we we have these group of people that we say have parkinson's and then we sort of cl clarify them together then we give them L-DOPA because, oh, well, Parkinson's means that they're no longer producing this in the body. So if we introduce that into the body, then it'll go away. No, that didn't happen either. And in fact, some respond to it this way and some respond to it that way. And, you know, on and on and on and on. And then you can go to YouTube and discover that you see these people with Parkinson's, they can barely move. 
And then you put music on and they can move to music. And it's like, huh? That sounds like woo. <laughs> that sounds like magic. I, I remember seeing this. We had a, a a dear, a dearly loved member of the church who had a significant stroke and had, you know, a, a great degree of aphasia. His wife was horrified when she would take him to church because the word that he said with 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 predictable uh, clarity was bullshit. Because she's like, I can't take him to church, Pastor, because when I wheel him into the church, he says, bullshit, 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 bullshit. You're not supposed to say that in the church. I said, take him to church. It's, it's okay. We all understand. He can say bullshit in church, all right? It's 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 all right. There are words that would have been even worse, but <laughs> bullshit, that'll pass, especially in Canada. Canadians don't seem to have as much trouble with that word. But anyway, it was amazing because he could, the, the guy couldn't communicate hardly anything orally, but he could sing a hymn from the Blue Psalter hymnal. Mm -hmm. Like, what's with mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, no, you're very right. And, and part of what we have going on in our culture is that when I talk about a recession, I try to use metaphors like mono lake where water recedes because it's a slow process because you're going to see more and more people, more and more, more and more um, professions begin to see this happening around them. And then you just have the psychology of change in people. So more and more people are not only aware of it, but willing to talk openly about it because some of these really massive models that were underneath all of the technologi technological innovation that we have benefited from for the last few centuries, that's changing. And as we push the models, we push the models to their very edge. And what happens when you push a model to its very edge is you start to get beyond the edge. And then, you know, Thomas Kuhn's History of Scientific Revolution, I read that in college and blew my mind. And it was like, oh, well, then you start looking for new models. And of course, what this whole little corner has been about downstream of Jordan Peterson, John Verveke, Jonathan Peugeot has been actually older models accounted for things that this other model really does quite poorly with. Yeah. So suddenly older models are reemerging. Yeah. And someone like Nassim Talib would say, yes, they're older and there's that oldness is not incidental. And mm -hmm. with, as, as C.S. Lewis said, our, you know, our chronological snobbery, we sort of had this, this model that broadly dismissed, broadly preferenced everything new over everything old. But what it doesn't understand is that actually very old things that endure, yeah. you should pay attention to them mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. Something's not going away. And again, this is this is exactly what happened to bring it back to the Christian from church in our own little um, context of misery right now. This is something that all the progressives forgot that, um, you know, all that old stuff like the Heidelberg Catechism and, and all of these old patterns of belief. There's a reason everybody just thought that, um, you know, I remember there was a a woman who came out here and she was part of this. CRC RCA program and she was part of the RCA and she came out here only to discover that a number of church plants in California RCA mostly actually were complementarian and she just said 
how can this be? Because didn't the egalitarian mode of inclusion of women in church offices, I thought that won the day. And any person, any person under 60 will automatically be an egalitarian. Just like people are thinking that any young person is just automatically going to be flying a rainbow flag. And it's like, you're not really understanding what's going on these days, because while many of us will would agree that the culture was definitely in need for some recalibration with respect to um, a variety of sexual minorities, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can just sort of say, oh, that doesn't matter. Actually, it matters because if it didn't matter, we wouldn't be having the issue because people would say, well, I'm attracted to men, but I'll marry a woman anyway. You know, it kind of matters. And you got to have to figure that stuff out. And it's going to be hard. So, so no, this, and that's where, you know, I didn't, I didn't get into what I've gotten into over the last six years because I had this figured out by any means. Mm-hmm. I just watched Jordan Peterson and I watched what was happening around him. And I said, something's happening there. I don't know what it is, yeah. but I have an intuitive sense that it's important. Yep. And so I'm going to look more. And that yep. of course set me on this track. Yep. Well, I, to pick up on a few things there, I, uh, when McGill Christ talks about the master and the emissary and he talks about how, this part of your brain that the um, right part of your brain that can see the big picture is actually more important because it sees the world more accurately. Um, and it sees it's well, that accurate. Isn't exactly the right word. It sees the world more. It sees the world more truly. Yeah. It's even if less right. accurately in yeah. some cases. Right. You're right about that. Yeah. Um, he, he he talks about a bird that needs to have a perception of um, both the predator, which may attack it at any time, and be able to pick out in the world the difference between a rock and a seed. And so this kind of broader sense of there might be a predator out there, this openness and to uh, to the broader world and, and to possibility. And I... When I think about like that, that just functions across so many different areas of study, but particularly science needs both. And, and science is, and, and actually this comes up in this Parkinson's book, but I've noticed it in other places too, where science has gotten stuck in, uh, well, we know our theories are true. So we just need to kind of keep chipping away at uh, and writing papers and and figuring out in medical science figuring out new drugs and and we're not nobody i mean, I mean one of the weinstein brothers who will talk about this nobody's kind of stepping back and asking these uh, big questions of well you know maybe uh, these kind of yeah right brain questions of maybe the whole maybe we've got to ask more fundamental questions about how are we viewing the world in the first place yep. and what's possible within the world. And that got me thinking one of my kind of questions in life is 
why does science emerge in Christian Europe, even though technology emerges in other places, but kind of science as we know it. And I thought, well, I'll just throw this out there because I can't prove it. But Christianity starts with this kind of group of women and men who see something in the world that does not fit with their preconceived model of how the world works. The guy who was crucified is not dead. And this and so this kind of openness to have your model of the world I mean put to death, as Paul says, uh, is uh, is an openness that uh, that science requires too. And to kind of go along and say, well, well, why is that? To pay attention to the outlier data. To, and I think there's an aspect of the, I mean, this loss of we're going to miss some CRC pastors who leave partly because they are the kind of people who are paying attention to the outlier data, right? Yeah. Like we, we need to be able to have that. Uh, and also then to cultivate practices where we are attuned to that, which is why worship is important. One of the reasons why worship is important. One of the reasons why liturgy is important. One of the reasons why we tell the resurrection story at least once a year, but hopefully every week um, as a reminder that your preconceived notion of how the world works may not be correct. Uh, and uh, that our bigger narrative frame constantly needs to be challenged and prodded and and questioned um so that it can align with what i think is is true like that god made the world and god is active in the world and uh, and that kind of thing and and it's and this is you know sort of where it's funny because in the process we bumped into the orthodox large o orthodox and you know it seems orthodoxy on one hand there, what what you just said, you can listen to and say, well, that's this this sort of this sort of um, solvent of skepticism is in Protestantism. It's like, yeah, it is, it is. It's also in orthodoxy because when they talk about all this apophatic theology, oh, yeah. <laughs> boy, they put the solvent in really early when they put it back there. Yeah, yeah. So um yeah. This and I and I I think you're right. I mean there's a just recently I don't know if you followed you, you've been offline because of Exodus 90 yeah. but um you know Jordan Hall who might not be a name you're terribly familiar with recently became a Christian. And he you know was right there with John Verveke in terms of the early days of a religion that's not a religion. And Jordan Hall in one of the podcasts now, because now everybody's beating and everybody from his old community is beating a path to his door, saying, "You did what? You know what? <laughs> you did what, Jordan?" <laughs> and and he's kind of saying, "I found the religion that's not a religion," mm -hmm. because and that points to exactly what you just said right there, that there. And, and even in our Protestant creeds, God is ineffable. Well, what do we mean by that? This whole Calvinist, um, 
this whole anti-idolatry Calvinism that says you, you have to keep, you have to really keep, be careful about idols. And so we, you know, we got really good about not putting pictures in our church. And sometimes we're not anywhere near as good as not um, holding up textual idols mm -hmm. and, and keeping the confessions from becoming idols. So, um, but it's that, it's that, and again, you can go back to Jordan Peterson, Chaos and Order. Uh, you can look at it, McGilchrist, Master and His Emissary. I recently picked up um, Pascal's Pensies, and what mm -hmm. he talks about in the first of it, it's like, holy cow. And and later with, with Pascal, the spirit of finesse and the spirit of geometry. It's like, hey, McGilchrist, McGilchrist is no dummy, and there's a reason his book is, his two books are this, that, because... We've been we've been dealing with this for a long time and pointing to it, but but even just pointing to the dynamic doesn't mean you escape it. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. say, "Oh, there's the dynamic." Okay, but even that dynamic, you know, you you need it. All instantiations need to be instantiated, mm -hmm. otherwise they don't work in this world. Even though, and this probably has some connection to the age of decay. None of our instantiations endure mm -hmm. because you know they're not they're not the source of the all those instantiations. So yeah. I don't know where you are on time. I might have an eleven thirty, but um okay. But oh, is there? I've got a few more minutes yet. So if yeah, you've got sure. something you want to do. Um nobody's popped into your office yet. Uh, no, I <laughs> Monday's usually pretty quiet. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, Monday's your day off, right, yeah. Pastor? No, yeah. Saturday was my day off. That's uh, the day that you called me. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, in some ways, I, maybe to end really on a note of hopefulness and encouragement, because when I look out on that kind of YouTube space and I look at, you know, um kinds of i think about jordan peterson i think about like my own um i discovered peter latehart pretty early on oh yeah as a pastor through some of his commentaries probably his writing and first things first things was a staple in my house um and growing up yeah, like you, we didn't have Catholic TV, but we had first it. things in Christianity today. There you go. <laughs> Just don't put them next to each other; they sort of right. spark. <laughs> and well, we also had Prism, uh, Ron Sider's magazine. So, oh, okay. uh, we had all three. Yeah. You could decide. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I think about one thing that Lightheart taught me was to find the death and resurrection of Jesus in passages of scripture in unlikely places mm -hmm. and to keep to keep looking for that and um like so he talks about uh, first and second kings and he talks about how all in his introduction to his commentary he says you've got these resurrection stories in first and second kings and first and second kings together as one book is the story about the death of a nation mm -hmm. getting carried off to babylon 
But all through this story of a death of the nation are these crazy prophets, and they are crazy in First and Second Kings, and they're they keep raising the dead. <laughs> it's like there's something to that, you know, that there is a resurrection story that's coming, even though the story is going to end in exile. Um, and and his like ability to and I look at the scripture that way, and I I see. And a Jordan Peterson, oddly, in a similar vein of like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at this story, but I'm gonna look at it through my experience as a clinical psychologist with hundreds of people and my readings elsewhere, and and then all of a sudden I'm gonna think I'm gonna discover, oh, Israel means the one who wrestles with God, which we all learned in seminary, but uh, Peterson all of a sudden highlights the thing and it's like, oh yeah is actually what it means to be human and you don't have to be christian to wrestle with god and talk to the group of 20 students that were just here they're all wrestling with what peterson calls the nature of reality or whatever right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so he's he's connecting the dots in a way you know that's really engaging and and been i think a real blessing to the church from yeah. that perspective um I, so that, I, I, I think in a way the internet's kind of getting us unstuck from new atheism and Justin Brierley, I have his book and I listened to some of his podcasts and he's kind of following this too. And, um, and that's been interesting to, interesting to see. And then of course I watched, uh, Ayan Hashi Ali, I read her conversion story and I found that really fascinating yeah. and you get like people who are in that old uh, God-shaped hole still exists. Yeah. It's <laughs> hard to get rid of. It's hard to get rid of. Sex, <laughs> drugs, rock and roll. You can try. Uh, Those yeah. are strong, but it's really hard to get rid of. It is. It is. And, <laughs> and I guess that gives me, you know, like, why are you a pastor? What do you want to do? And that's what I want to do. Like, you know, there is, there is incredible and beautiful answers to some of these deep questions and found in in god and and found in christ and and then lived out can be lived out in your life and you know and i um i want to build it i, I think church needs to be to create that environment where you can encounter god yeah. and that's what i've tried to make my ministry about is not so much what about pastor nate it's about uh, can i like hey can we create this environment here where you're gonna come uh, into contact with god because he's the only one who can make a difference yeah. in your life yeah. um and if Jordan Peterson helps you get there, if John Verveke helps you get there, if Michael Schmachtenberger helps you get there, uh, or my, <laughs> even if you can't spell it, uh, yeah, that's right. If uh, uh, you know Hall. all these interesting yeah. people, but they're all you know, at least what they're doing is saying there's something to the world beyond empiricism, yeah, and you need to pay attention to it, yeah. Um, I you know, another way to get at it, a negative way, maybe, is I had somebody say to me, I'm tired of being lied to all the time. Yep. And I think yep. a lot of people are yep. are feeling that. Yep. I mean, like I, you talk about COVID and say, well, 
I got my two shots like I was supposed to. And I still I got, got it. <laughs> I also got measles shots and I got uh, rubella shots and I got mump shots. And guess what? I've never had measles. I've never had mumps. I've never had rubella. I've never had hepatitis, but I got COVID. <laughs> and, Twice. And, right. And so this is kind of what can we just see what's in front of us here is that whatever that was, whatever is different than whatever the other shots were. Can we admit that? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's really what people are wanting, especially right now, is for people in authority to just just admit that your knowledge is fallible. Yeah. Um, and that we didn't know as much as we declared to everyone that we knew. Yeah. And uh, and that's all right because yeah. there's a lot of times as a pastor I have to say I don't know. Yeah. And and you can say you can admit that your knowledge is fallible, and people, yeah. it's not that people will. Not not get the mump. Well, they'll be a little more skeptical about mumps and measles and stuff. But people can people can sort of see that. Yeah. But they do they do want you to be honest with them. And mm. and they because if you're not, I mean, and back to the institution of church. Listening to to uh, Sam and Luke. Yeah, but don't betray my loyalty. If I'm loyal to you, just please be honest with me. Mm. And, and that's, and that's what I, I'm, I'm okay knowing that you're limited and fallible. I'm okay with that, but I don't want to be a dupe Mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be conned by you. So just, and, and I think if there's any reason why, you know, that part of the reason why this little channel you know, has gotten where it's gotten over the last five years is because I just had the providence or dumb luck of having exactly the right time to make a Jordan Peterson video. But I think more of it is, well, can we at least just talk honestly with each other and just treat each other like human beings? Because if we can, we all have a sense of what that's about. And it isn't to say that none of these other issues are important because, you know, I still have the case that people want to sort of button me down and just like say capture me and get me in a get me in a fight about this this little this little agenda or that little agenda and I, I I'm fine with you have different agendas than me. I have no problem with that at all. But there's also another way that we can talk where we can we can be together, we can disagree and we can still be productive together. Now again in the Christian from church we're trying to figure out the boundaries of that and that's a hard thing. But um, at least, at least let's treat each other, you know, go back to what your philosophy professor said, you know, can we love each other? Can we, Mm -hmm. can we start there? And um, at least part of that loving each other is maybe civility, get to a Richard Mao, um, you know, agenda, civility, kindness, toleration, patience, all of those things. And I think, I think the dirty little secret it's not really dirty, but the little secret of so many churches is that there are plenty of churches out there that know how to do this. And I think that's what a lot of people are beginning to discover that they sort of wrote off church because there's, there's bullshit and there's con artists. And yeah, you and I probably know that better than most lay people do that there's bullshit and there's con artists, but there are also and that's that's part of the reason I still will try to point people to Christian Reformed churches because I respect my colleagues in our denomination. I really do. And mm-hmm. and and on both sides of the the current division. Mm-hmm. 
because mm-hmm. and even even some of the ones that are hotheads on you know in the CRC yelling in publications and even on the internet i respect even those because i have a i have a certain degree of confidence that oh they may be all excited about this issue one way or another but but they most of the ministers that get into this job in this denomination do really major in people and they major in love it's part mm-hmm. of the benefit of all the status getting wrung out of our profession <laughs> <laughs> you only get in this if you really like people. Uh, this is true. <laughs> this is true. If you don't really like people, you'll be teaching seminary or in a denominational bureaucracy. So yeah. <laughs> not everybody in seminary in the bureaucracy. Okay. I, I just disclaimer for all our bureaucrats listening. Oh boy. Oh yeah, boy. this video will get us in lots of trouble. But hey, I guess. One thing I maybe I'm curious about, uh, how's it going for you? Like, I mean, I, sometimes I think about, I mean, you alluded to it earlier. Like I got a, I got a church here with 200 odd people. And like, I, if I don't get really rigorous about how much time I spend online, um, I, I will fail in my obligations to the actual flesh and blood people that I know uh who are around me um and yeah how do you uh, are you finding that balance are you finding that balance oh, i never get difficult? it right it's a constant yeah. it's a constant tug of war well you know it, it, but it's the same tug of war i've always had you know yeah. that you've yeah. got you've got people have i visited them enough have i paid mm. enough attention to this group have I have I paid enough attention to the administrative tasks of the church? Is the building sufficiently hospitable? I mean, this profession is never ending for those kinds of time and attention tug of wars because you could work, you could have four staff members in your church all full time and not do all the good things that could and should be done. Mm-hmm. And you know that. And then there's classical things and denominational things and community things. This is a, it is an impossible profession, but I, I, I don't know. Um, I think part of what saves us is we do always, we, we also always know that someday I will stand before our Lord and have to give an account for how I spent my time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, what changed with the internet was if I was just kind of making videos about Jordan Peterson and looking at numbers of people watching, then I probably would have quit this long ago. But when people started reaching out to me and wanting to talk and my their conversations with me were so open and sincere and honest, I couldn't, as a minister, turn them away. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly I had to realize that I can't talk to all of them from online. So I will prioritize, you know, to get a rando slot with me can be really hard, but to meet me at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, that's simple. Just walk in the door. You'll probably have me all to yourself for a while, but you got to be here early. (laughs) So in other words, you need skin in the game too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I don't know. I'm I'm of course never doing it all right, but I have seen that God has used the channel and I 
was I going to be able to do the work? I mean, part of the things that when you take your vows and your installation vows, do the work of an evangelist. Um, I, I wasn't getting a lot of opportunity to do that locally. Mm -hmm. So if someone would say, what about the time you spend on YouTube? I'd say, I'm fulfilling my ordination vows of doing the work of an evangelist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some would say, well, you're a very strange evangelist because I very seldom hear you give a clear, I said, well, maybe you should listen more carefully for one thing, but um, because people are becoming Christians because of globally what's happening and happening in this little corner. And um, at least some people say that I've been helpful. So mm -hmm. that's, that's where it goes. And um you know, again, I keep thinking Living Stones is going to die, but I've got a new members class with seven people in it, which is like, which will, you know, become a, if all of them follow through, become a significant bump in percentage of membership. And, you know, so I don't know. I just, you know, I just try to keep doing what Jesus tells me to. <laughs> that's a, that's my plan every that's now and then. That's, that's my plan. That's the best plan. Yeah, you follow that lamb wherever he goes. That's that is that is the job. So that's what that's what I'm doing. So and and I know, I mean, God gave me this channel and this audience, and I should use it to His glory. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, and I think sometimes. Every now and then there'll be a comment as you're like, "Well, your church maybe wouldn't die if you didn't spend so much time on YouTube." And it's like, my church was dying long before I did anything on YouTube. <laughs> and all of my all of my efforts to keep it from dying uh, didn't avail hardly anything. It, it always brought joy and life in, but it didn't bring numerical growth. And yeah. so so I think, oh okay, Lord, if if I can if I can help people become, Catholic and Orthodox and, um, you know, go to other denominations along the process. I think I'm doing the work of an evangelist. I think that's mm -hmm. my job. So waiting for the Orthodox church to send me a check. I uh, got Orthodox people sending me checks, but not the Orthodox church. <laughs> <laughs> you just say you're welcome. That's right. <laughs> 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 oh, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, I mean, well, I, I got to land the plane here because yeah, I got you something do. Yeah. coming right up. But Nate, this has been a joy. Um, I'm going to clip this up because we got some good clips in it. I'm going to put it in no wait, no ads for a little while. And then okay. uh, it'll appear on the channel. How's that sound? Sounds good. All right. It's great hey, talking we'll to you, We'll see what Nate. happens. We'll hey, do it again. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye.